Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, it's definitely true that we long to be in the safety of home. But it's also clear that this world is not that home. Some of you may have read in the news this past week of the drowning of twin three-year-old boys in South Carolina. Uh, The boys and their family were attending a social event where a group of children went outside to play after lunch. And during this time, the the twin boys found their way over a fence or under a fence that was around the pool. And they went in and they drowned. And the grieving father was quoted as saying with a hint of resignation. He said, you protect your kids as best as you can. They reach an age where they can run around and play. How do you defend against everything? How do you defend against everything? Just this this statement of powerlessness against all of the things that can threaten us in this fallen world. And of course, this comes on the heels of a two-year-old Nebraska boy who was snatched and killed by an alligator in Disney World in Orlando, a city which has also recently seen the killing of a 22-year-old singer named Christina Grimmie. Uh, who appeared on the television show The Voice, and she was gunned down by a deranged fan in Orlando while she was signing autographs after a show. And of course, the killing of 50 people at an Orlando nightclub. And what is particularly disquieting and troubling about these events is that there's just going to be more of them this week, or the week after that, or the week after that. Events that involve just unimaginable damage and loss and grief. And I want to believe that these things only happen to other people. But you and I both know that disaster and affliction can intrude and invade into anyone's life at any moment without any warning. And that is never a welcomed intruder. But when it does intrude, we at least want to know that these kinds of afflictions and disasters have some kind of meaning or purpose. It's why we reflexively ask questions like, why? Why did this happen? And it's why we describe so many tragedies as senseless. You ever notice that? We talk about senseless tragedies because we want to make meaning of them, but we have a hard time with it. We long for purpose. One person stated in the midst of suffering, said, that is all I want in life, for this pain to seem purposeful. Because pain is tolerable if we're confident that it can lead to a good thing, like the pain of childbirth that leads to life and joy. But it becomes almost unbearable if it seems meaningless to us. Well, Job is someone who knew acute affliction. He lost all of his possessions, He lost not just one of his children, but all of his children, 10 of them, seven sons and three daughters, all at the same time when wind brought down the place where they were sitting. And then on top of that, he lost his health. And like us, Job aches to know that there is some meaning, that there is a purpose, that there is some explanation afforded by divine wisdom for his affliction. 
We find him wrestling with this throughout the book and we hear this struggle in many places, including in Job chapter 23, verses two through 12. So that's our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Job chapter 23. We're gonna be reading verses two through 12, but we're mainly concentrating on verses eight through 10. Verses eight through 10. So you can follow along here on the screen if you don't have your Bibles, Uh, but let's stand for the reading of God's word now. Job, beginning in verse two of chapter 23. This is Job speaking. Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. And when he turns to the right, I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. It's important in understanding that through these words we see that Job's struggle is a struggle of faith seeking to understand. This is not a struggle of unbelief on Job's part. Twice in the early chapters of the book of Job, in chapter one, verse 22, and in chapter two, verse 10, we are told that Job does not sin and that he does not accuse God of wrong. He does not sin with his lips. And so because of that, there are important lessons here that we can learn about having faith in the face of affliction. And so that's what we're gonna consider this morning faith in the face of affliction and what that looks like. And let's begin by thinking about this, faith's confusion in affliction. That's really what we're reading about in verses eight and nine, faith's confusion in affliction. In attempting to understand affliction, we have a tendency to want to explain all of it as some kind of cosmic retribution or divine punishment for personal transgression. That somehow we've done something wrong that has deserved affliction. But Job stubbornly resists any accusations if he's being punished for his sin. We see this in verse seven. He just wants to obtain an audience before God because he believes if that's possible, there in verse seven, an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Notice that language of being acquitted, of being absolved of wrongdoing. Now, of course, we know from the early chapters of Job that he's not being punished for some specific sin in his life. But he doesn't know that. He longs to be vindicated. But we could say in a general way, yes, our afflictions are the result of living in a fallen world that's caused by sin in general. But this notion that our personal sufferings can always directly be tied to some kind of specific transgression in our life is not biblical. That was the view in part of Job's Job's friends 
And it persisted into the Judaism of Jesus' own day, this idea that, that somehow personal affliction is related to specific sins in our lives. But we see Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 9 encounter this man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples ask Jesus this question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And you see the assumption in their question is that this man's blindness can be directly attributed to somebody's sin, either his or his parents. And we still wrestle with that very notion that if someone is suffering, if we're suffering, we've done something specific to deserve it. Even though Jesus dismisses the simplicity of that explanation right here when he answers his disciples by saying, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. How could that be any more clear? That's not the reason for his blindness, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus dismisses this notion that, that we can always attribute personal suffering and affliction to specific personal sins. It's not that simple. And because Jesus dismisses that, we should dismiss it too. After all, aren't we pretty aware that we don't live in a, in a universe that's run strictly on a principle of good things happening to good people and bad things happening to bad people? Because bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people just as often. And affliction is not evenly distributed among good and bad people in this world. It just isn't. It seems random to us without reason and there is no discernible pattern to it. We just, we, we don't know. It's confusing to us, our affliction and the affliction of others. Now, we might sometimes think that we have the answer for it. Maybe deep down in the recesses of our heart, we think we can explain why God would allow that mass shooting to happen at a gay nightclub in Orlando. Yeah, maybe, maybe I know why God allowed that to happen. Really? Are you going to use that same explanation to describe why the 22-year-old singer, Christina Grimmie, was shot down signing autographs, who I believe was a Christian? Why did that happen? And are you going to try to explain why what a two-year-old boy did or his parents did, that God would allow that to happen at Disney World in Orlando? you have answers for that? It, it's confusing to us. God's ways confuse us. And we probably need to honestly admit that more often than we do. Christians don't have all the answers for ourselves or for other people. And you may be here this morning wrestling with the confusion of why God has deprived you of certain blessings, the blessings of family, of loved ones, of a loving father or a loving mother or a spouse or children, why he has deprived you of health or strength or vitality for many years, why he's deprived you of sight or hearing or meaningful work or peace of mind and joy and mental health when he hasn't deprived those things from other people. And you may wrestle with the confusion of why people who are not at all devoted to God, his kingdom, or his righteousness are spared the afflictions that his servants have to endure. We don't have the answers to those questions very often because we don't always understand what God is doing. We don't know the purposes of affliction for us or for others, and we don't always sense his presence. We're not 
always perceptive of his goodness in, cert in, in certain situations, and we don't always feel like the object of his affection. And this is precisely what Job is expressing in verses 8 and 9. He says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I don't behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. That is faith's confusion in the face of affliction. I don't get it. I don't get it. And it boils down really to two questions for Job and for us a lot of the times in our confusion. One question is where? Where is God in the midst of all of this? Where is God when I'm hurting? Where was God on 9-11? Where was God in the horror of the Nazi concentration camps? Where was God when that alligator was creeping to the edge of the water? What was he doing? Why did he allow that to happen? Which is the second question. Where is God in all of this and why does he allow these things to happen? Jesus himself seems to express faith's confusion in the face of affliction when he echoes David's own confusion by qu quoting Psalm 22 on the cross. My God, my God, why? Why? There's that question. But that question is asked by Jesus on the cross in a posture of faith. Just like Job is asking these questions here. He still says, my God, why? It seems that perhaps faith is greatest when it's exercised in the face of great ignorance and confusion. That we don't get any of it, but we're still wrestling in faith. But Job teaches us also that great faith moves past mere confusion to confession. And that's the second thing I want us to consider from this this morning. Faith's confession in affliction. Job doesn't allow his confusion to turn him into a complete skeptic. Instead, he moves to this confession, the beginning of verse 10. He knows the way I take. It's true that Job doesn't understand what God is doing. It's true that Job has no idea why all of this has happened to him. It's true that he doesn't clearly perceive God's meaning and purposes in his, in, in his affliction. And it's true Job doesn't have it all figured out. And neither do we. But there is someone who does. There is someone who knows. There is someone who is present. There is someone who sees, even if we can't see. He knows the way that I take. So even if God and his purposes are hidden from my view, and even if I can't clearly perceive how he is working or how he is present in affliction, God still is there. He still sees. His eye is still fixed upon us. There is a phenomenon in early childhood development referred to as object permanence. Object permanence is our ability to understand that things continue to exist even when we can no longer observe them with our senses. And very young children, babies, lack a sense of object permanence. You can hide a toy behind your back and a young child will become disinterested or upset, sometimes very quickly, because I just assume the toy has disappeared. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. This young child right here will not look behind that obstruction for that stuffed animal. Because it, it lacks object term, uh, permanence. Even if the child sees you put the toy behind your back, he or she won't look there. Because it doesn't have object 
permanent. That's why children love to play peekaboo, right? Take your hands and cover your face and then move them quickly to reveal your face and a baby will respond with genuine delight and pleasant surprise that your face is still there. Because the baby can't see it, doesn't exist. It lacks object permanence. Now the moment that child starts clawing at your hands to move them to reveal your face, they're starting to develop object permanence. But at a very young age, children think that you can't see them just because they've covered their own eyes. They, do, they just don't have a concept of that. And we are very much like babies, spiritually. When we can't see or sense God's presence, we are quick to conclude that he isn't real or he isn't there. Right? But listen, in the midst of your affliction, God knows the way that you take. He is still there. He hasn't disappeared. He hasn't forgotten you. He has not become unmindful of you. He has not grown indifferent to your suffering or to your affliction. Just because you can't see him or his ways doesn't mean he's not there. He is there and he knows the way that you take and he cares deeply for that. Robert Murray McShane wrote this, there is no time that the patient is such an object of tender interest to the surgeon as when he is bleeding beneath his knife. So you may be sure if you are suffering from the hand of a reconciled God that his eye is all the more bent on you. All the more. But of course a key word there is a reconciled God. Because our assurance that he not only knows but cares deeply is that if our faith is in Christ and we are God's children, the same God who has allowed this intrusion of affliction into your life is the God who sent his son as an expression of the depth of his love. And so we can know that he cares deeply, even in our affliction. And Jesus himself tells us that he knows the number of hairs on our head. Now that is not just merely a theological assertion of divine omniscience, that God just knows everything down to the smallest detail. It's more than that. It's an assertion of the depths of God's care and intimacy for his children. I love my children. And when they were younger, I, I spent many hours with them on my lap as they were resting and as they were sleeping. But as much as I love my kids, it never entered my mind to become so familiar or acquainted with them that I began to count the hair on their head. Never thought about doing it. And I'm not going to do it this afternoon when I get home. But that's the depths of intimacy that our Heavenly Father pursues and delights in for us. God is there in the midst of our affliction. That's where he is. He knows. His eyes are fixed upon us. And he doesn't just know the path of our affliction or the fact that we're undergoing affliction. He knows by experience our affliction. As the man of sorrows and as our high priest who is able to sympathize with, with us in all of our weaknesses, who was tempted in every way as we are. Jesus bearing grief for us Jesus bearing grief with us, and Jesus bearing grief like us. He knows the way that I take. He sees me, even if I can't see him. So faith's confession in affliction is not a confession about understanding everything that God is doing in disaster or tragedy or loss or suffering. 
faith's confession and affliction is this. He knows and he cares and he's here. That's it. I don't understand it all, but he's here. And it's more than that. It's a confession that there is a good meaning and purpose in our affliction. And so let's consider third, faith's confidence in affliction. Job states this also in verse 10 at the end. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Note that Job is confident, not just in affliction. He expresses confidence of affliction. Not if, but when he has tried me. Now, of course, Job is in the midst of his ordeal here. But our confidence is not in thinking that because we belong to Jesus, we will escape affliction and suffering. Where would we ever get such an idea? That if we belong to Jesus, we'll escape from affliction. According to the Bible, we don't get that idea from the Bible. Because according to the Bible, it's because we belong to Jesus that we can expect affliction in our life. The Bible advertises suffering, not in the fine print, but in the headlines. Jesus says this about discipleship in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, an instrument of suffering, and follow me. That's what's entailed. We read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you all that for the sake of Christ... You all should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 and 3, Paul writes this. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Confident of affliction in our life. Our pathways involve affliction as Christians. But Job also manifests faith, faith's confidence in affliction, not just of affliction. Job clings to the truth that there is goodness in his affliction, that there is a meaning, that there is a purpose, that there's a design, that there's a goal, that there's a reason. I shall come forth as gold. Now, by mentioning gold, Job is alluding to how God tries us in the furnace of affliction in order to remove dross and impurities. Job is suggesting by gold that he's being developed, that he's being refined, that he's being purified, that he's being polished to become something of great beauty and worth. That's Job's confidence. Contrary to how affliction might feel, God's purpose is not to ruin us. It's to refine us. Satan's purpose is to destroy us and ruin us, but not God's. But at the same time, we want a God who promises that he's not going to hurt us. He doesn't promise that. He doesn't promise that. What he does graciously promise is that he's not going to destroy us. On the contrary, he's going to refine and purify us and fit us for everlasting glory. Now, some assert that a good God, if God was good, 
he would and could and should use painless methods to fit us for glory. But isn't that kind of like thinking that you should be able to purify metals without heat? Isn't that kind of like a filthy dog expecting a good, loving, tender master to just forego the bath because it'll make the dog uncomfortable? Isn't that like a blind man who had his sight restored, expecting a good, faithful friend to continue to shield him from the painful rays of light that set him free to see? But a good friend's not going to do that. It might hurt. The light might sting. But it's good and loving. And the truth that we forget in all of this is that we need to be healed because there's something wrong with us. We need our blindness healed. We need to be cleansed because we're dirty. We need to be purified because we're impure with our sin. We need that so that we can be fashioned into the image of Jesus and fit for glory. And in love, God is committed to that process much more than we are, even if that process involves pain and unpleasantness. And note here that Job doesn't even begin to imagine that he's already gold. He doesn't think he's already gold. He's, he, he's looking into the future. He needs to be refined and purified. And so do we. We need to be refined and purified. But his confidence remains firm. Not I might, not I hope, but I shall come out as gold. But you know what? We can have even more confidence than Job. Because our confidence that God has a good purpose in our affliction is ultimately and securely anchored in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus who endured the affliction of the cross and then afterwards was raised into glory. And if you are united to Jesus by faith this morning, you will follow him. You will follow him. You can be confident. Yes, you will follow him through the fires of affliction but you will follow him into everlasting glory as well. Faith's confusion, the where is God and the why, comes from the fact that we just don't understand everything God is doing because God is God and we're not. And that's really the only answer Job gets in the book. And that might be the only answer we really get in this life about our afflictions. But just because I don't understand something doesn't mean it is senseless. If it doesn't make sense to me, it doesn't mean it's senseless. I'll, I'll be honest. I don't really understand how sound is recorded and played back on any device. I don't get it. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how that process starts. I'm going to record this sound and then play it back. I don't get it. But some people do. And so sound is recorded and played back. And so, in a similar way, even in our confusion, we can practice faith's confession that God knows what he's doing. God has a purpose. God is there even if I can't see him. Even if I can't make sense of it, there is sense in it. So that leads to faith's confidence as well, that there is goodness and a design in our affliction. He's refining us and purifying us like gold so that we can reflect the image and beauty of Jesus in glory forever. 
Origen, who was one of the early church fathers, insightfully wrote this. We understand these pilgrimages only dully and darkly, so long as the pilgrimage still lasts. But when the soul has returned to its rest, that is to the homeland of paradise, it will be taught more truly and will understand more truly the meaning of what the pilgrimage was. You may agree with that. You may agree with everything that's been said this morning. And yet, you're still feeling like, I just don't have Job's faith. I don't have faith like Job. My faith is more like Peter's. And when I look around at the overwhelming waves and circumstances in my life, I start sinking and I start doubting. And unlike Job in verses 11 and 12, your foot does slip. You do depart from his commandments and you don't treasure his words in affliction, but instead you're prone to question and doubt his purposes, his love, his goodness, and his wisdom. Well, if that's what you're thinking this morning, me too. Me too. I don't do well with affliction. But here's the good news for all of us. Our salvation is not secured in the strength of our faith. How strong it is, how vibrant it is. And it doesn't depend upon the depths of my love and care for God or the degree of that love. Our salvation depends on the strength of his grip on us and the depths of his love and care for us that was manifested so clearly in the sending of his son Jesus to live and to die for sinners like you and me. We are secure in God's love for us. Let me close by sharing with you a letter that James Dobson shared in one of his books. It was written by a father who wrote the letter as a tribute to his young daughter who had died after a lengthy illness. And this is what he wrote. My dear Bristol, before you were born, I prayed for you. When you were born on my birthday, April the 7th, it was evident that you were a special gift from the Lord. More than the beautiful bundle of gurgles and rosy cheeks, you taught me the Father's love more than anything else in all creation. I certainly loved you when you were cuddly and cute, when you rolled over and sat up and jabbered your first words. I loved you when the searing pain of realization took hold that something was wrong, that maybe you were not developing as quickly as your peers. And then when we understood it was more serious than that. I loved you when we went from hospital to clinic to doctor, looking for a medical diagnosis that would bring some hope. And of course, we always prayed for you. I loved you when one of the tests resulted in too much spinal fluid being drawn from your body and you screamed. I loved you when you moaned and cried, when your mom and I and your sisters would drive for hours late at night to help you fall asleep. I loved you with tears in my eyes when confused you would bite your fingers or your lip by accident and when you crossed your eyes and then went blind. I most certainly loved you when you could no longer speak, but how profoundly I missed your voice. I loved you when your scoliosis started wrenching your body like a pretzel, when we put a tube in your stomach so that you could eat because you were choking on your food, which we fed you one spoonful at a time for up to two hours per meal. I managed to love you when your contorted limbs would not allow ease of changing your messy diapers, so many diapers, 10 years of diapers. Bristol, I even loved you when you could not say the one thing in life that I longed to hear back. Daddy, I love you. 
Bristol, I loved you when I was close to God and when he seemed far away, when I was full of faith and also when I was angry at him. And the reason I loved you, my Bristol, in spite of these difficulties, is that God put his love in my heart. This is the wondrous nature of God's love, that he loves us even when we are blind, deaf, twisted, confused, weak, or lost. God loves us even when we can't tell him that we love him back. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, give us faith. Faith that may be confused, but grant to us by your grace a faith that moves past confusion to confession and to confidence in your goodness and your love. We thank you that we are secure, not in our own strength, but we are secure in the strength of your love for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.